listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Okay, as we uh, continue our journey through Mark, we've been with Mark for a long time now. (laughs) I'm going to read from chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. I'm certain it's on the screen before you, if you'd like to follow along. They were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, Look, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Appoint us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to appoint but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Instead, whoever wishes to become the great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks for that reading, Kurt. So it's good to be back preaching in person this week. I like it a lot better this way, personally. Um, although I'm, I am grateful that we've got the technology that we can, you know, pre-record sermons like we had to last week. Comes in really handy in a pandemic. Um, but it is good to be back. We're picking back up with Mark chapter 10, um, and we're looking at this story where two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, come up to Jesus and they ask him for a favor. Uh, we've got we've got this exchange here on the slides. Uh, the request up here. <clears throat> they lead off with, "Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you." Right off the bat, you know it's probably not good, right? 
Like any, any parents in here, you know, if, if, you're, if your four-year-old leads off with that, something is probably broken. Right? Like that's, that's where that's going. Um, teacher, when you come into your glory, when you take your throne as the Messiah over all the, the kingdoms and the rulers of this world, let us sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left. They want cabinet positions, basically. That's what they're asking for. I really like this art piece from the front of our bulletins. We've got it up here as well, um, depicting James and John. Uh, this is by a contemporary artist named Nora Murphy. I think it was painted just a few years ago. Um, I like this depiction a lot because it captures how young these guys were. The disciples were probably in their late teens or early 20s. I think we often forget that. When the disciples of Jesus do silly things and say silly things and ask for silly things, they were teenagers, some of them, hormones raging, brains not fully developed yet, right? John is usually remembered as the youngest of Jesus' disciples. I like this image, too, because it looks like two guys who'd probably be good in a fight, right? Like, like James and John, they look friendly enough, but they could probably throw down if they had to. Um, remember, these are the sons of thunder, right? That's Jesus' nickname for these two brothers. He calls them the sons of thunder, which basically means they were hotheads. It means that um, they were short-tempered. They were the kind of guys who would, like, jump without looking. Jesus is basically kind of teasing these two when he calls them the sons of thunder. Jesus warns his disciples that he's going to die for the third time. This is the third time he's told this group of folks that he is going to be arrested, handed over to the Gentiles, and killed. And the sons of thunder respond by asking for political appointments. Now, we've jumped around a bit in this section of Mark. Uh, this isn't the first time that we've seen the disciples, you know, vying for position, arguing over who's the greatest. All that stuff can kind of blend together after a little while. But I want to back up a little bit to help us connect some of these dots and see where this is all going. And I want to think all the way back to Easter Sunday, if we can. All right, today's Pentecost. I want to see if you guys can remember Easter Sunday, seven weeks ago. Who remembers Easter Sunday here at church? Anybody? I know the kids remember. The kids' hands are shooting up. Easter Sunday was a blast, wasn't it, guys? There was an Easter egg hunt, which was a lot of fun, right? Um, we had breakfast before church out in the fellowship hall. That was a blast. Uh, my son Zeke had the flu on Easter Sunday, so he couldn't come to church. He, that was a bummer. That was two infectious diseases ago for us. Um, <laughs> and on Easter Sunday this year, we talked about the transfiguration. That was the story we looked at in church. This story of the transfiguration where Jesus goes up on a mountain and he's transformed. His clothes turn bright white. His face starts glowing. Moses and Elijah show up. Do you guys remember? You guys remember this story? Is this ringing any bells? Okay, some people are nodding. That's good. That's good. The kids, the kids got it. Who could forget Easter? Jesus goes to the top of the mountain, and he takes three disciples with him to the top of the mountain. Does anyone remember which three disciples Jesus took to the top of the mountain? Just Peter, James, and John. That is correct. Jesus put, took Peter, right, the, the first pope, uh, according to, like, our Catholic friends, and the sons of thunder to the top of this mountain. 
That is the inner circle. These three disciples are the leaders. Peter, James, and John have been with Jesus the longest. They've worked with him the closest. These three disciples. And in this section of Mark that we've been reading since Easter, Jesus has predicted his death three times. Every time some disciple has stepped up, gotten out of line, not gotten the point, and had to be put in his place by Jesus. Does anyone want to guess which three disciples have missed it? (laughs) Yeah. Are the dots connecting? Peter, James, and John. Uh, Just to recap, the first time this happens, Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die. And that's when Peter takes him aside and he rebukes him. Peter's like, what are you saying, Jesus? You can't talk like this. The Messiah can't die. And Jesus says what to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. That's rough. Then the second time this happens, Jesus predicts his death. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He talks about servant leadership. This is when Jesus holds up a child and is like, you know, if if any of you wants to be the greatest, you got to be the least. You know, be like a child. And that's when John speaks up. And John's like, oh, by the way, We saw another guy casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't one of us, so we stopped him. (laughs) And Jesus rebukes John. This is the third time Jesus has predicted his death. And this time it's James who steps up, bringing his brother John. He brings some muscle, and they start asking for political appointments. Let us sit, one on your left and one on your right, when you come into glory. Three times Jesus predicts his death, and all three times the disciples don't get it. And it's these three yahoos who are leading the way. This is the inner circle. These are the leaders. How are they missing it so badly? How can these three guys be so blind? I think the answer lies in the title of our sermon for today. The way of the mountain and the way of the cross. Again and again, Jesus keeps pointing his disciples to the way of the cross. But these guys just want the mountain. See, I think there are basically two types of power in our world. There's the way of the mountain and the way of the cross. Mountain power and cross power. The way of the mountain is the way of domineering power. Controlling power. The kind of power we see in the kingdoms of this world, the kind of power that in the wrong hands can become violent and destructive, that's the way of the mountain. But there's also the way of the cross, which is the power of love and self-sacrifice. It's Jesus-shaped power. It's the power that lays down its own life for the sake of another. Mountain power and cross power. Peter, James, and John have been to the mountain, right? Like, literally. They've seen the light show. They witnessed Jesus in all of his glory and splendor. They've seen Jesus reflecting the kind of power that they're used to seeing from the kings of their world, the power that impresses, the power that puts on a show, knocks you over, strikes you with fear. They've seen that power, and they want it. They want a taste of it for themselves. 
But Jesus is pointing them to an even greater power, and it's the way of the cross. You could basically read all of church history as a balancing act between the way of the mountain and the way of the cross. Every church, every Christian, any point in history, we're leaning one way or the other. Uh, When we see the early church in the book of Acts welcoming outsiders, pooling their resources, spreading the good news, that's cross power. When churches today feed the hungry, stand for justice, march for civil rights, that's cross power. But when we see churches jockeying for position, trying to get it in good with the the powers that be, when we see churches fighting crusades, waging holy war, that's the way of the mountain. That's that dangerous, domineering, worldly power that can poison everything. Uh, A recent example of this that's been all over the news, and it's painful to talk about, but it's what's happening with our crazy cousins in the Southern Baptist Convention. Has anyone been following the news on what's happening with the SBC, the Southern Baptist? It's uh, Christianity Today did a whole expose. It was in Washington Post, New York Times. This has been all over the place. Um, About two weeks ago now, an independent report was released detailing a history of abuse in the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the country, one of the largest Christian denominations in the world. Um, There are spiritual cousins. Uh, Our denomination, the American Baptist Churches USA, was formed when the Northern Baptists, which is us, split from the Southern Baptists over slavery in the 1840s. And this report uncovered decades of abuse by clergy and leadership in the Southern Baptist Church. And I've got to really watch my language here because we've got kids in the room with us. But we're talking Roman Catholic Church level abuse. Adults in the room know what I'm talking about. So many victims. And it's been happening in the SBC for decades. And even worse, the leaders of the denomination knew about it and they've been covering it up. They moved abusive clergy from church to church. Um, They discredited abuse victims and bullied them into silence. When that didn't work, they would pay them off. The SBC even had a secret file in their headquarters that contained the name of over 700 abusive clergy that they knew about, that they didn't report to police, but they were keeping tabs on to monitor their own liability. It's infuriating. It's heartbreaking. And for me, at least, it's a, it's a bit confusing. Like, how does this crap keep happening? How do so many people know about stuff like this and not say a thing? How do self-professed Christians become so blind, so morally bankrupt and askew that they're willing to look the, way, look the other way on this terrible evil? There's a lot we could point to with Southern Baptists, a lot of, you know, core issues that might be at the root of some of this, patriarchy, homophobia, a long history of being on the wrong side of pretty much every ethical issue from, like, slavery to segregation. But a big part of how this happens is the way of the mountain. That is front and center in this, mountain power, chasing after mountain power. Uh, According to this report, 
The big problems in the SBC go back to the 1980s. Now, I know most of you young folks in here uh, were not alive in the 1980s. So, so let, me, let me catch you all up on, on what was happening in the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1980s. Um, beginning in the late 70s, there were a group of leaders in the SBC who got together and orchestrated a, a hostile takeover of the denomination. This was very public. This is a big part of, like, Southern Baptist history and kind of their identity. Um, it was out in the open, and this is where the modern incarnation of the SBC came from, the, the organizational structure that exists today and facilitated this cover-up. These leaders believed that there were too many progressives in their denomination. And I don't even know what constituted a progressive among Southern Baptists in the 1970s. They would have loved us. Um, But they thought there were too many progressives in their denomination. They were also concerned that more and more women were taking positions of leadership and authority in the denomination. And they were worried about the decline of Christian culture and the political influence of the church declining in America. This is in the late 70s. So these leaders orchestrated a takeover. And in a series of votes and political maneuvering over about a 10-year period, so through the 80s, the Southern Baptists consolidated power. They drove out moderate and progressive voices from the denomination. They silenced women, took them out of leadership, kicked out any church that was ordaining female clergy, and they launched what is today known as the religious right, this unholy alliance of evangelical, mostly Southern churches, with right-wing politics, looking to wage a culture war and conquer America for Jesus, and it worked. Their denomination exploded, it got bigger, their churches grew, brought in all sorts of people, bigger, bigger, more and more money, more and more baptisms. But look what happened. What do you think happens when you remove accountability on this scale? What do you think happens when you silence voices that disagree, painting them as outsiders, uh, enemies, demonic? When this investigation first started, uh, multiple Southern Baptist leaders denounced it as the work of Satan. (laughs) They actually said that this is just a distraction from evangelism. What do you think happens when you remove women from the decision-making process and consolidate power around a bunch of men who are looking for worldly status and prestige? What happens when advancing the mission and protecting the organization, protecting the church, becomes more important than protecting human lives? I'll tell you exactly what happens. You get one of the largest cover-ups of clergy abuse in history. When we jockey for position in the world, when we play this us versus them game and ignore the voices of those who offer correction, when we try to advance ourselves, we are playing with fire. That's the way of the mountain, and it's one of the deadliest forces on the planet. Now, it's easy to point fingers at the Southern Baptists. Believe me, it's one of my favorite pastimes. It's easy to rage at all these corrupt leaders and churches, especially when they get exposed. There's a little bit of schadenfreude in that, I think. But what about us? 
How is the way of the mountain affecting us? How is it manifesting in our church and our lives and our relationships? We are not immune from this. None of us. We face the same temptations and that same draw of worldly power, mountain power. In our families, you see it in how we treat each other, how we talk to each other. What are the power dynamics in your home? How is power exercised? How do disagreements get resolved and play out? Are we jockeying for position with our spouses, our partners, our kids, our parents? Or do our relationships within our homes, within our families, reflect the self-sacrificial love of Jesus? In our personal lives, uh, our careers, our sense of identity, relationships with friends and neighbors, how are we relating to the world around us? Are we looking to advance ourselves? Is our goal to make more money, acquire more stuff, gain power and influence? Are we jockeying for position in the world? Or are we learning to put others first, walk alongside the least, and surrender our power like Jesus? What do our spiritual lives look like? What does our church life look like? How do we relate to each other in here? How do we relate to other churches? How are we relating to God? Is our relationship with God based on this sort of like spiritual exchange where like we do the right things, say the right prayers, God rewards us, blesses us? Am I chasing some kind of spiritual mountaintop experience, a a sort of high Do we use God almost like a drug to to draw power and energy? Or as we grow closer to God, are we growing in humility and love and grace? You might not think that any of this is connected to what's happening with the Southern Baptists, but it is. It's easy to look at them and be like, thank God that's not me. Thank God that's not my church. But it is us, guys. It is our church. It could be our church. We wrestle with the same impulses, that same struggle in our hearts between cross power and mountain power. If you take a look at your bulletins, I've got mine up here. We always put this little going deeper section in here where you can take some stuff from the sermon and reflect deeper on it. And uh, this week, we put a series of questions in here. These are questions I want to encourage you to think about, pray over, meditate over. Take some time with this this week just to read a few of these. Am I less interested in worldly power today than when I first began following Jesus? Have I ever experienced being rebuked like Peter, James, and John? If so, how did I respond? Do I feel like gradually over time my eyes are being opened to new ways of being human? Less interested in status and position and titles and more concerned with the other. Do I engage in futile competition with other followers of Jesus? There's more, more questions there. I don't know about you, but some of these hit me hard this past week. I'm going to be spending some time reflecting over these. I hope you will too. 
because this is a struggle for all of us. Mountain power is so seductive. It's been a reality that followers of Jesus have had to wrestle with since the very beginning. And that brings us back to the disciples. Jesus warned the disciples. He warned James and John that they didn't know what they were asking for. It's not for me to decide who sits at my left and right when I come into glory. He's talking about the cross, right? Jesus comes into his glory at his death, the hands of Gentiles on the cross. And who was at his left and right? Thieves, criminals, probably political, failed political revolutionaries. They were crucified with Jesus, and at least one of them joined him in paradise. Peter, James, and John were nowhere to be found. They ran away and hid. But that wasn't the end of their story. The disciples were restored by Jesus after the resurrection. Um, all three, Peter, James, and John, went on to become leaders in the early church. Um, at least two of them, Peter and John, wrote multiple books that show up in the New Testament. And eventually, all three of this inner circle came to embrace and came to know the way of the cross. The Apostle Peter was crucified about 30 years after Jesus was crucified by the Emperor Nero. And when they led Peter out to be crucified, the legend has it that he asked for his cross to be turned upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. Then you got John, one of the only disciples who lived into old age. Although he was imprisoned during his life and tortured and exiled, but in the end, John's legacy was one of love. Check this out. This is from 1 John. <clears throat> Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. That doesn't sound like one of the sons of thunder to me. That sounds like a man toward the end of his life who was instructing his own disciples in what it looked like to follow the way of the cross. And as for his brother James, the other son of thunder, James was the first of the 12 disciples to die for his faith. He was one of the earliest Christian martyrs. He was executed by King Herod when he refused to renounce Christ. His death is recorded in the book of Acts. Kind of gives new weight to these words from Jesus. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. Don't strive for power and glory. Don't chase the way of the mountain. Pray that you might be inspired that you may be transformed by the same spirit that transformed these two guys to embrace the way of the cross. Let's pray.
Lord, send your spirit on us afresh. Empower us to discern between the power that reflects your love and self-sacrifice and the power that only destroys. Lord, lead us in the way of the cross. Transform us in your spirit. Make us new. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.